This is the 966 episode 54. Richard Wilson, how are you doing, sir? Lucian Ziegler, great episode 54. Each one better than the last. It's like kids. You know, you're you're digging your kids now, but every year it's going to get better. I hope it does. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, you don't think there's you don't think there's any more room to improve, but they just get they just get better and better. That's great to hear. Um, That's awesome. Um, Yep. Episode 54. We're really moving along here. In just a few minutes, we'll be getting to a truly fascinating and revealing interview with Ied Albayouk from the VC firm Flat Six Labs. A really great conversation with Iyad. We'll be talking about Saudi Arabia's growing startup ecosystem, entrepreneurship in the kingdom. Before that, Richard, this week, we'll get to our one big things. Good to be back, Richard, with our normal format this week. Thank you so much to all of you for watching and listening to us. We wanted to let everyone know that we're working on some back-of-the-house stuff for the program, including a new free weekly email letter that shoots our episodes and segments directly to your inbox. So look out for that on our website, the966podcast.com. Um, Richard. What do you think? Let's get to it. What's your one big thing this week? Let's get to it. Yeah. By the way, just before that, you know, we we weren't we didn't grace the episode last week with with one big thing or yellow, but uh, that was cool last week to do that special episode on the yep. post Biden trip. And I thought our analysts were just spot on. I've gotten a number of good comments about their insights, and I also thought it was interesting that they all had different things to say. Okay. So I was very pleased with that. Um, one big thing this week. Uh, early this month, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman announced priorities for research, development, and innovation sectors, so RDI for short, in the kingdom. Citing a 20-year framework, these RDI sectors, research, development, and, and innovation, uh, are slated to prioritize health, environmental sustainability, leadership in energy and industry, and future economies, so four sectors that they're slated to really prioritize. Um, A notable aspect of this initiative is that a standalone research, development, and innovation authority, RDIA, has been established. The RDIA is intended to, quote, act as an enabler, legislator, and regulator, and to develop moonshots, a phrase I really like, flagship programs, projects, budget distribution, and performance monitoring, unquote. The person heading up the Research Development Innovation Authority is Dr. Munir al-Dasuki, who is also president of the King Abdulaziz City for Science and Technology, CAXT, leading leading institution, does a lot of great work. Um, And he had a number of interesting things to say in a recent interview with the National newspaper, including that the RDIA plans to rely heavily on open innovation in science, including the launch of programs for special residency arrangements to attract scientists from around the world and make it easy for them to migrate to the kingdom. Quote, the research talent pool is going to need to increase by seven to eight times. There will be a special track under the innovation policy to attract VCs, investors, and potential future Nobel laureates, among others. They're part of our family and community. We aren't constraining it to citizenship programs. We have extended residency programs for entrepreneurs, VCs, and investors. Um, And, continues, quote, for the first time in the kingdom, we have a center of government alignment on these kind of plans, research, development, and innovation. The Ministry of Energy has its own plans. NEOM has futuristic plans, be it the Oxagon or the line, but we need alignment on all of them from national or international players to be able to solve the challenges, unquote. Um, Dr. Suzuki 
continues, we have 400 stakeholders, including SABIC, Aramco, every ministry, local and international partners, and we work with all of them, unquote. Um, Dr. Aldasuki noted in the past, it's been difficult to link academia to the private sector, startups, and SMEs. And according to Dr. Aldasuki, quote, the pull side was missing. And, and a lot of the big companies that do R&D found it easier to do it abroad. We are fixing all these policies and working with the private sector to help make it easier for them through tax rebates or subsidies or incentives, incentives unquote. Uh, the RDIA strategy should be announced by the end of the year uh, with details, he said. I've already put in a, a, a plug to have Dr. Aldasuki join us on the 966. Maybe it'll be later after they do the strategy because this is really interesting. And it's a notable effort you know, to align government regulatory frameworks in the private sector to create a more attractive environment for research, development, and innovation. What is super cool about this, Richard, is that this is not just a piecemeal approach. It's not one thing or just a bunch of different things. This is sort of the unification of many different things under one large long-term strategy. And, um, and I'm so glad that you chose this as, as your one big thing this week, uh, because we'll be shortly getting to an interview with a, a VC um, yeah, at Al Bayouk, which is just a great conversation. And this is sort of in that space of innovation, entrepreneurship, um, technology, and really two great quotes um, from Dr. Eldasuki in this uh, piece from The National, which is really good. We recommend it. Um, the first is scientists want more than just a place with good tech or funding. They want to be in a place where innovation can take place. And we aim to make Riyadh the innovation hub by launching these programs. All the challenges we are facing are global challenges, be it sustainability to food security, um, et cetera. And then he says this dedicated budget and commitment from central government was what every researcher in the kingdom was dreaming of. And I think that that is really, really cool and interesting because they're essentially saying, what we need here is a big strategy, top-down strategy with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the top overseeing it all. And essentially all of these things need to work together toward one goal, which is 20 years in, in the future of 2.5% of GDP being contributed by this program um, alone. But I think it's just like really what they're doing here is saying, look, let's, let's not start from scratch, but let's take a full scale look at what we're doing here and bring it all together so that everybody's cooperating. There are no, um, you know, lanes between these different ministries and companies and VCs. It's just everybody working together. Um, and I think well, this is a really, really interesting, and it's going to be very interesting to see this full plan reveal at the end of the year, as you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I agree. It's uh, trying to put uh, a structure to a goal, <clears throat> which is always hard to do. So it'll be interesting to come out, but the, the, the intent is admirable and it tried to avoid smokestacks where, you know, some one person is doing one thing, another person doing another thing, and there might be synergies if everyone's involved. And, and um, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting initiative. And um, I think it's interesting that it's placed sort of, it's not necessarily in CAXT, but uh, you know, it's, it's a serious, it looks like RDIA looks like it's going to be an empowered, serious entity. And that's, uh, that's critical to achieving anything in this, in this sector. What we just uh, what we just talked about, Richard, um, is kind of the essence of Vision 2030. I mean, there is diversification away from oil. The way to do that is innovation, entrepreneurship, having a unicorn or two come out of Saudi Arabia, just completely out of the blue. I mean, that's how you're going to get non-oil exports and non-oil GDP to grow as much as you want it to grow in, in line, you know, to compete with oil exports going forward. So. 
and we'll be talking about some of the things MBS said about the line. And it was interesting, and I'll mention it uh, unless it comes up previously. On your one big thing, um, the very real intention to have a significant expatriate community. Um, And that includes, you know, uh, scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, any kind uh, across STEM, you know, uh, which is what they prioritize, but just making an attractive place for people to come, uh, which is a bold move. This is Saudi Arabia, freaking Saudi Arabia. And, you know, they're putting their, they're throwing their hat in the ring <laughs> saying, come here and do your research here. So we'll see how it goes. Love it. Richard, you did do a nice little transition into my one big thing, um, <laughs> which I think you and I, to not talk about this huge announcement this week from the kingdom might be malpractice for us here at the 966. <laughs> so let's talk about the line, a futuristic, almost unbelievable concept from Saudi Arabia's leadership. It is essentially a huge city, planned city, which is only one building that is 109 miles long in the shape of a single mirrored line cutting through the Saudi desert in Neom, which is in the northwest of the kingdom, as we know. Uh, first with the plan and some key details, it, as I said, 106 miles long, ultimately will house 9 million people, 200 meters wide, so 656 feet, designed to six, sit 500 meters or 1,600 feet roughly above sea level, which is interesting that they would note that detail. It will span 34 square kilometers or 13 square miles. That is huge. That is massive. The line will run entirely on renewable energy, which is cool, with no roads, no cars, no emissions, and a high-speed rail will connect sections of the line, kind of sort of like, Richard, like an airport terminal with the train going right down the middle. (laughs) Um, They'll they'll love that analogy. Yeah, sure they will. (laughs) Um, The concept here is, I think, uh, universally can be viewed as futuristic and forward-thinking, but is it achievable? I think almost all of the most ambitious projects in human history dating thousands of years back have shared one thing in common, and that is a general contemporary sense that there are or were viewed as impossible to achieve or near impossible to achieve when they were announced. And I think the easiest thing in the world would be to criticize this. You look at the sort of hype video for the line, which is just the highest production quality that money can afford, as you can see, and and we'll have some of it rolling here on the B-roll, but it's just... It is spectacular. It does look like a science fiction movie. Um, But if you think about the goals behind it, things like no carbon footprint, renewable energy powered, community living with shared access to pure natural surroundings. Um, Richard, the the line's been teased out in the press for now, for a while now, but this is the first real look at it. Uh, And now we really see the vision. Of course, now the financing and other heavy lifting begins. So I'll let you react to sort of what you think. Um, I don't know if you, I'm, if you can. I don't know yet what I think. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a whole flood of, of things because, yes, you're right. It was teased out. I mean, the line was first announced in January 2021. Different kind of idea. Still a long line that ran from the coast into the into the mountains, but, you know, with sort of pod cities along the way. This is, this is extraordinary. And I, I think, as you said, you know, I think a lot of people, I I sort of, I wrote down when we were looking through this, you know, I wrote down hubris, ambitious, visionary. And, you know, people who dismiss Saudi Arabia and criticize MBS for anything he does, this is hubris, this is outrageous. Uh, It's unequivocally, unambiguously ambitious. You know, is it visionary? I mean, and, and, and things, 
cities like this have been tried before. I mean, there's Brasilia in Brazil, there's Chandigarh in India, Putrajaya in Malaysia, Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi, nothing on this scale. And that's what's just sort of mind bending. So, because if you look at it, we're talking not just one skyscraper really, you know, but it'd be two parallel. 106, 107 miles. That's essentially extending from the northern suburbs of New York City to the southern suburbs of Philadelphia. The two buildings, they'd be, uh, you know, around 600, and 600 feet, 500 meters. So just there, th that would slot them in now as the 11th tallest buildings in the world at this moment, you know, between the Shanghai World Financial Center and Taipei 101 in Taiwan. I mean, that's just insane. Uh, you know, the scale of it. And it's a 50-year project and, and, you know, it's going to cost over a trillion dollars. The first phase of the project is estimated to be $320 billion between now and, and, and 2030. So I had a friend who said, pointed this out, all right, do the math on that. So, you know, the math on that is if you started the clock this month, it would be $3.2 a month for 100 months straight. So, so, the aspirations are enormous. You know, the funding needs will be enormous. Uh, and I don't think anybody expects this to go, you know, on schedule and happen. But, but so you put that down, you go, okay, this is just beyond belief. I mean, is it even possible? I mean, and then, so, and for me, I sort of move into some of his comments, Mohammed bin Salman's comments when he was announcing this. And you go, Wow. Uh, so one of the comments he said, quote, if you have money, you should raise the bar and create something innovative and different. Since we are doing it from nothing, why should we copy normal cities? I believe it's going to be the best livable area by far in the whole planet, unquote. He called it a civilizational revolution. And, um, and I guess the, the whole design, which, you know, and, and I hope there's some pretty cool videos and, and I know your B-roll is outstanding. So I, we'll, we'll see what's great. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, so I, I encourage people to look at it and, and a lot of people already have, because obviously it gets a huge buzz and everybody weighs in. Um, but I guess it's, it's, you know, what's called zero gravity urbanism is the informing design of this, which offers, you know, it's an idea of layering city functions vertically and so the up, down, and across, and you know, and and you know, public parks, pedestrian areas, schools, homes, places where everyone, everything within five minutes, and um, not spread out. You know, ecologically, it's better. Energy-wise, it's better. So on and so forth. But it's still, you know, a, a, a fairly new concept, and nobody's ever tried anything like this. So, so when I say I don't know what I think about it, I think it's stunning. Um, and you know when you listen to when you listen to 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 the uh, designers and the and the crown prince talk and you and you listen to Saudis, you go sort of go. That's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a big swing. That's a big swing, and it, I mean that's it's admirable. I understand what he's trying to do, and and maybe they don't get it, but. You know, we both. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a Washington Nationals curly W shirt today, just by happenstance. We're both fans of the Washington Nationals. We're both fans of the Washington Commanders. Wouldn't you like an owner that takes big swings like that? You know, oh, oh it, man, you know, we just do a whole segment on that. <laughs> no. And and so this is 
I, you know, as the more I got into this and the more, you know, I was looking at this, this is just, you know, it's hard. Again, it's an enormous concept, but it, it's a big swing and I, I admire it. I think that that was a really um, excellent, excellent reaction. I, I, I just, my, my first reaction to this is to immediately say, well, this is so ambitious and so ridiculous that your brain defaults to no yeah. way. You know, there's no way you can do it. It's way too big or long or expensive. And the fact that that is my first knee-jerk reaction makes me like it immediately. Because then I just think about Tyson's Corner outside of um, uh, where we have an office, Richard, outside of D.C., where everything is built straight up in the air and you can't really walk to a building two buildings down. You can't really walk to anything. And, and they're working on that, but they're trying to solve that problem after building the buildings. Correct. And so what this is is actually sort of an approach that says, and this is part of the marketing, but they're saying, well, what if we could start over? Would we really do it again that way and then try to bolt on some you know, moving walkways and a tram system? Why don't we build it around getting around, get rid of the cars and the parking and the noise and the pollution and everybody shares an outdoor space. Um, I like it. I mean, I, this is it's too bad that this was announced just two to three weeks after we interviewed uh, leading Saudi architect, Day al Wan, who's just really brilliant. It would be really cool to ask her what she thinks about it. Um, but, you know, Richard, you use the analogy of uh, base hits the other day um, about little wins for Saudi Arabia. This is like Babe Ruth standing up to the uh, to calling point, your shot, calling a shot. Yeah. And then not just promising a grand slam, but declaring that he's going to hit the ball 300 yards over the fence. I mean, that makes me think, okay, what if this is only 10 miles long? That's still a home run. That's still a grand slam. It would be a marvel to see. It would be a prototype for other human developments around the world. There'd be some mistakes and stuff that people could learn from. There's also so much, I'm sorry we're going long on this, but there's so much to think about here. Like what, so are they going to start and just start as close to Neom as possible and just start moving out? Cause if that's the case, you could build two miles of this thing. And then as demand, you know, satisfies it just keep building and making it longer and longer and then the second thing that i'm curious about is so what's your like mailing address is it the line <laughs> and then your mile marker 43 zone 4 apartment 452 above the trees and the terrarium i mean yes exactly i, I just think this is cool I'm, I'm sorry i mean i'm sure people expect that but i think this is cool well and, and they've got to fund it which is going to be a challenge and of course they're doing the oxagon which is you know right off the shore there and and um I, you know, again, the other thing I kind of like, and it's, and, you know, it's things like, uh, you know, the Newcastle acquisition or Live Golf or uh, Formula One, all these things with their, 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 their um, going hard after in the face of massive criticism. And, you know, it would have been easy to take this Greenfield project, Neom, you know, and, and do something that is familiar uh, comfortable, well understood, even even it's not a little forward edge, but I mean, to take the swing and, and to stand up and understand you're going to be criticized and you're putting your putting a lot of things on the line on uh, what would be a very ambitious, difficult to achieve project. Again, I admire that. And it's kind of it's kind of owner I'd like to have from my franchises that I support. Uh, so it's it, it's it's really, as I said, it's mind bending. But when you get into it, uh, I think in many ways it's admirable. 
And it seems it's everyone we talk to, and, and we've had a, had a discussion today is, is Saudi seem to be very proud of it. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really interesting, and this has been consistent with Vision 2030 all along, is sort of a redeclaration of Saudi Arabia as a physically located place in between East and West and Europe and Africa. I mean, it really is sort of at the intersection of the world, depending on how you lay your map out. And what what the Saudis are doing with the line and Neom and Oxagon and investments in the Red Sea and completely rehabilitating, revitalizing um, Riyadh, which we also talked about earlier today. I mean, what they're trying to do here is say, look, we're building something. It's going to take so long. It's going to take decades. But the end result is you're not just transiting through Saudi Arabia to get to Asia or or vice versa. You're coming here because this is a great place to live. I mean, if this works out, this will be the pyramids. I mean, this will be something that is a, a, a modern marble of the world. And, you know, Richard, like you said, I mean, there's been a lot of people that have tried in the past, countries that have tried in the past to build mega projects and have failed or have come up short or just abandoned them altogether. But there's also been dozens, hundreds of examples of these types of things where at the time were just completely impossible. The Brooklyn Bridge, um, Sears Tower. It's like, what do you mean you're going to build a building that high? There's no way you can. I mean, people yeah. couldn't believe it. So I like it, um, you know, start with maybe a few miles, get it financed, <laughs> like prove the concept. And I think if it is really cool, people will want to live there. I mean, and we discussed earlier, Richard, uh, we keep going back to this, but I mean, one in five Saudis would move to Neom today and it hasn't even really been built yet. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's encouraging. And the weather apparently is really nice. So I think you, I think you make a, a good point about, uh, changing the conversation about Saudi Arabia. And one of the interesting things that came out in Prince Mohammed's Crown Prince Mohammed's um, discussion of the topic earlier this week. And I think indicative of what Saudi Arabia wants to become and how they want to change the conversation is he, he, he said the goal for 2030 is to have 50 million people, half Saudis, half foreigners living in the kingdom up from roughly 34 million a day. By 2040, this is according to MBS, the target was 100 million people. So, and he, he quote, that's the quote, that's the main purpose of building Neom, to raise the capacity of Saudi Arabia, get more, more citizens and more people in Saudi Arabia. And since we're doing it from nothing, why should we copy normal cities, unquote. So, you know, in his mind, he sees a Saudi Arabia that has no resemblance to what we perceive it today. And I think that's where sometimes we, 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 we can't keep up with the imagination because everyone's stuck in their, their, their picture and perspective of Saudi Arabia today. And he's seeing something entirely different. And I think that's where they're headed. And that's what he's hoping to achieve. It's possible to achieve it all. But, you know, just as you were saying, it, you know, the intent is to completely change your perception, and understanding Saudi Arabia to the extent that you want to go live there. Mm -hmm. Richard, we'll leave it there. Let's get to our awesome conversation with Iyad al Bayouk in the VC space in Saudi Arabia. Super hot right now. Just a great combo. I, I recommend this highly. Um, this is somebody who knows his stuff. Stuff. Yeah, let's put stuff in there. He knows his stuff. <laughs> it's a family uh, program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't yeah, had any. He's, he's, he's a treat to listen to. He really yeah. knows his stuff. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. Saudi Arabia's venture capital space is experiencing rapid growth and in the first half of 2022 has already surpassed its total investment amount for last year with over half a billion in investments in the kingdom. 
Joining us today on the 966 is Iyad Al-Bayouk, General Manager at Flat Six Labs Saudi Arabia, an early stage and seed venture capital firm in the kingdom, which just two months ago announced an agreement with Saudi Venture Capital for a new fund to invest $40 million into early stage and promising Saudi startups. He had previously worked with Sandable Investments, Arzan Venture Capital, and other organizations before joining Flat Six Labs. Iyad, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the 966 and welcome. Hey, no, well, thank you for having me, Lucian and Richard. And it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and uh, really excited to, to have this uh, chat today. Well, Iyad, when we first spoke, I don't know, a month and a half ago or maybe more, I was just delighted because, you know, Flat Six Labs has quite the pedigree in the region. and. And you're there as a, as a general manager of the KSA office or branch. Um, uh, but, you know, now that we come to the to the episode, it couldn't be better timing because as Lucian referenced, uh, Magnet, uh, along with uh, just did a venture capital report, which they did in collaboration with Saudi Venture Capital, which uh, highlighted just a stunning first half for Saudi Absolutely. Arabia. Absolutely. And it, it's been on that trajectory for the past uh, four years, I'd say. So we really started to see some of these changes take hold in 2018. Of course, it, it was all really driven by uh, government policy. So, so definitely a top-down approach there. And I think it was something that was um, overdue for, for quite some time. Um, of course, uh, it's no surprise that we have a very centralized, or historically at least, we had a very centralized economy. And I think with some of the reforms that were taking place um, to increase the participation of the private sector and basically uh, enable capital to go to private enterprise and, and essentially create more jobs uh, for uh, the Saudi population, which I would label as the end game out of all of this. Uh, we started seeing some of these um, uh, mandates essentially go into effect around 2018 with the launch of the Saudi Venture Capital Company. Uh, again, that's, that's a, a government-owned enterprise that operates under the umbrella of the Ministry of Commerce, uh, interestingly enough, by way of a um, private sector enabler uh, uh, called the, uh, the Small Medium Enterprise Authority. Uh, of course, locally, we refer to it in its Arabic name, Munchaat, uh, essentially a different, a different translation for entities or enterprises. Uh, and then we had another similar organization uh, set up by uh, the Public Investment Fund uh, that currently has the brand name of Jeddah Fund of Funds. Um, much like uh, Saudi Venture Capital Company, they also uh, come in as a limited partner in private closed-ended fund vehicles, uh, essentially with a focus to um, speed up the, the growth and participation of uh, the private sector vis-a-vis -vis, uh, making more capital available for, for private enterprise. Of course, I think it was a lucky coincidence that all of these efforts essentially uh, find their way towards uh, venture capital funding as opposed to any other form of uh, funding, but I think that really gels with the structural nature of, of uh, uh, the Saudi economy, at least in its current form today. It's, it's, it's brand new. Um, private uh, enterprises are not uh, at a level where they would be for an economy that's of uh, similar size and stature. 
And I think it was just a natural evolution of that funding being available, making its way to newly built and, and high growth enterprises, as opposed to more established companies, which again, are not on par with uh, most, uh, I would say, emerging and, and developed economies of, of the same size and, and, uh, and stature as, as Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's a that's a really useful overview, and I think uh, for me and our listeners, that gives it you know gives some context. And you know, we had sort of outlined a, a topic list that we wanted to go through. And as always, you know, the first encounter, you know, all our plans are out the window because that was so good. I want to I want to go forward a little bit on SVC, the Saudi Venture Capital. This is, as you say, 2018 introduced assets under management about a billion dollars. You know. Since its inception, SVC has backed 30 funds, five angel investor groups, invested in 401 startups and SMEs. So it's it's the big fish in the pond. How do private venture capital groups sort of organize themselves around this? And and I want to get to, you know, Flat Six Labs has a relationship with SVC. You're doing a really interesting initiative. I want to get to that. But again, in a broader context, just as you say, it's a top-down sort of environment. But increasingly, uh, private investors are getting involved. And I would I would say one of the most interesting things, and you can you can contradict me on this, but I thought one of the most interesting things on that magnet report, and I do want to come back to that and go over some of the things, was that, you know, uh, in the first half, a record number of 88 investors backed Saudi-based startups in H1 2022. Big part of that uh, was that 58% of those active investors were based in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia, correct. So I want to come back to that, but I'm really interested in your take on, on how how these private sector fish revolve around this big fish or these two big fishes, the, the Jeddah Fund of Funds and Saudi Venture Capital. So I think it really comes down to another structural um, problem, if you will, and, and that we really don't have the institutional investor base that you would find in most developed economies. So. Um, I, I think when the plans were being laid out to increase capital funding and, and uh, basically fund uh, availability for the private sector, um, all the management consultants that were working on these mandates identified that um, alternative asset managers, uh, private equity, venture capital, and other forms of, of these uh, capital uh, wallets essentially fueled a lot of the economic development when it comes to uh, private sector and, and a lot of benchmark economies that they were trying to compare them to. Uh, now for us, we don't have the typical uh, pension layout that you would see in, in, uh, in the States, for instance, or you don't have as many pension uh, operators, whether they be on the public side or on the private side to provide that capital. Also endowment funding and, and the way endowments are structured and, and and so forth are, are quite different. So we, we were, our endowments are a bit more uh, conservative in nature and they haven't really ventured outside of uh, very safe um, investment uh, vehicles, I'd say, at least historically. And then uh, of course, in addition to that, I think a good chunk of capital sits with uh, in family offices. So uh, your, your typical merchant families that have been around for centuries, some of them predating uh, the country's establishment in, 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 uh, in some cases. Um, those are actually another uh, quite large source of funding. However, a lot of that 
capital was really focused inwards towards some of their more conventional uh, group companies and, and operations that really got them to where they are today. Um, so I think really these uh, large semi-government enterprises, uh, as we see in Jeddah, really came about to kind of show the rest of the private sector and other pools of capital that there is value to be unlocked at the earlier stages and within um, different, let's say, business models within the private sector, uh, arguably much larger than a lot of the conventional plays that we've seen in the market by way of, um, you know, private government contractors, uh, of course, on, on the construction side and, and more trade businesses, which really dominated the private sector here. Are you seeing some movement? Well, you, you, you mentioned you know, pensions and, and endowments and family offices in particular. And as you say, they're very conservative, so they're not really looking at startups and even SMEs in many cases. Are you seeing some movement in that direction? We absolutely are. And in fact, we're, we're trying to finalize um, our uh, basically funds uh, backing by one of the larger family office groups here in, in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, of course, we're, we're at the final stages there, so I can't really disclose much about the identity of that institution. But again, it's something that I personally wouldn't have dreamt about uh, even a couple of years ago. So it's, it's kind of nice to see that taken to uh, effect. And of course, the catalyst there, uh, I'd say, was also COVID. So I think a lot of these institutions really saw their worlds crumbling down, uh, especially with um, uh, business models that are quite reliant on foot traffic and, and physical transactions. Uh, you know, of course, during COVID, a lot of these businesses had to shut down and essentially realize that they're quite behind when it comes to digitalization and uh, essentially the, the digital economy. Uh, so that's that's definitely one area that we're seeing mobilized into the asset class and into uh, digital investments. But also, likewise, we're seeing more participation from corporates, uh, public publicly listed and otherwise. The larger corporates are definitely uh, dipping their toe in the water uh, more so than they have been in the past. Not as much, unfortunately, by way of uh, your typical institutional investors that you would see in a more uh, developed market. So pensions, I think, have uh, a little uh, uh, time to, to kind of go before they uh, start participating in the asset class. But then again, there it might be a bit structural in terms of the barriers to, to, to them participating. Uh, the way that we have our pension system uh, designed here, we have one large, uh, or at least historically, we have one large public pension system. And then we had another separate pension system vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the General Organization for Social Insurance for the private sector, both government run. Uh, they were separate until about a year ago when both were merged under one roof. So what we ended up with is a very large social uh, safety net for pensions that handles both the private sector and the government sector. Of course, uh, when an entity becomes that large, um, there's only so much assets that they can invest in that would move the needle. Of course, putting small tickets to venture capital is, is a nice way to diversify away from how they have their asset allocation structure today, but is it really gonna move the needle in terms of 
any unfunded um, uh, basically liabilities or, or, or um, uh, uh, pensions that they have to fund, not necessarily. So I think that's where we have a little bit of way to go. Uh, of course, there's a lot of talk about privatizing that space altogether, but I think it's, it's still uh, some, some ways away before we see that come to light. That's interesting. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to get to some flat six lab things. But just to clarify, so GOSI, that's how I understand the social insurance oversight, is now it's now public and private. It's correct. So uh, actually, so it was it was two organizations. So we had uh, the public pension um, authority, which was uh, mandated with taking care of uh, public employee pensions and completely separately run. And then we have GOSI, which handles uh, the private sector's uh, pensions. Again, both uh, government run and uh, kind of play a regulatory and, um, of course, the, the typical function of, of any um, pension manager that you would see elsewhere in the world. Um, about a year ago, there was a decision to essentially merge the two organizations together. That merge has, has been completed now, and I think it's, it's in a stage where there's a revisitation of the asset allocation and essentially trimming of the fat between any redundancies that were uh, in, in place between the two entities prior to their uh, merging. And as you say, I would anticipate what, you know, their, 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 their investment uh, portfolio and approach would not change much, would remain pretty conservative. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk about Flat Six Labs. Uh, you know, as I said, quite a pedigree, I guess, uh, you know, begun initially in, in Egypt, uh, now in seven, seven countries. Is that right? Uh, Correct. Yep. In the region you're in, uh, you have operations uh, in uh, Lebanon, Tunisia, Bahrain, Jordan, UAE, Saudi Arabia, obviously with, uh, with Egypt. By the way, I'm really interested in the origins of Flat Six, the name, you know, because I know Flat Six, that's this type of engine. Uh, and but I, you know I don't know how it plays here. You may not know, but uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a, so yeah the, no it's it's a, it's always a topic of conversation because like you said uh, I also thought that it was a reference to the flat six engine uh, for vehicles, but then it turned out that it was the 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 British or English uh, meaning of the word flat, i.e. apartment number six. So that, that was really their first look. Um, it's actually still part larger location of Flat Six Labs. So that building is entirely occupied by Flat Six Labs and Flat Six or apartment number six still exists today. In fact, it's where uh, the Cairo-based uh, accelerator program operates out of uh, and, and this current uh, day and time. That's even a better story than an engine. That's nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So where does typically, so I mean, if you look at, at venture capital funding, you know, it goes from pre-seed funding to seed funding to series funding all the way to IPO. Where typically does flat six in this ecosystem, where does it, where does it make hay? I mean, where, where does it like to position itself? So as, as early as, as possible, we would always uh, like to say so. Of course, there's, there's always some variations between our different locations and um, maybe I'll get to that in, in a little bit uh, down the line, but essentially we're, we're early stage investors. So 
we don't shy away from pre-revenue operations, pre-MVP operations, uh, really, as, as the uh, saying goes, uh, to two guys or two, two people and, and their dog out of a garage is, is exactly where we would like to come in. Um, and it's, it really, <laughs> exactly, yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, it really came about, I think, from uh, the two founders, so uh, Ahmed Alfi and Hani Sambati, um, essentially uh, started off with another vehicle called Sawari Ventures. So that was envisioned to start investing in uh, Series A plus type uh, ventures. But I think when they really launched that operation, they realized that it was uh, somewhat of a slim picking scenario, given that back then, we're talking circa 2009, 2010, that ecosystem was still not developed even, even in Egypt, which has always been kind of a hub for entrepreneurial activity in the region. Um, and because of that, Plastic Slabs was born, essentially a accelerator type model that helps create more of these entities so that Sawadi would be um, more uh, better positioned essentially in, in their pipeline um, so that they can observe and invest in these companies as early as possible. And then the ones that uh, kind of survive that journey end up getting the larger uh, ticket of capital from Sawadi Ventures. And you said, uh, and you said that it might differ among the offices, you know, depending on the market needs. So the UAE may be different from Jordan. Absolutely. And, and I think the biggest factor there, and it really goes back to uh, funding sources at uh, our LP base, um, is, is that we do often have different mandates uh, depending on which country office we're, we're uh, operating out of. So for instance, in North Africa, of course, uh, a, a large chunk of the capital uh, and, and LP commitments comes from uh, DFIs, uh, which carry specific developmental and social entrepreneurial mandates and oftentimes are focused on uh, specific emerging economies rather than others. Uh, of course, in the Gulf, you have more participation from the likes of, as we see in Jeddah, that have their own local mandates that dictate what type of um, essentially is being invested in. Uh, of course, there, I think the, the shared um, uh, mandate across the board is local investments for local entrepreneurs. Uh, so essentially to accommodate this, we ended up with a structure that is also localized for the local market to uh, not only fulfill the mandates of our LPs and, and their uh, socio-developmental requirements, but also to bypass some of the regulatory and statutory requirements in each one of these locations. Uh, I think it's no secret that uh, MENA, even though uh, most people would like to paint it as one um, uh, big region essentially is made up of much smaller markets that are quite um, different in terms of the requirements and, and uh, their statutory, basically, uh, structures. Let's talk about your relationship with Saudi Venture Capital and, and really interesting, you know, I guess, uh, launched in April. Uh, Saudi Venture Capital partnered with Flat Six Lab to launch the Startup Seed Fund, correctly? Correct, and, 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 and also working with your Riyadh Seed program, and this is a, a $40 million proposition. 
looking to empower more than 60 startups over the next three years. Can you can you talk about it? It's quite exciting. And, and, and you know, as, 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 that's that's the group you want to partner with. A hundred percent. And so essentially, uh, SBC is our first LP uh, in, in that fund. And uh, until uh, very recently was the largest LP um, uh, with the exception of this uh, private sector player that we're, we were mentioning a bit earlier. Um, of course, none of this would have been possible without them. Uh, I think uh, they've been, uh, of course, an instrumental player for the sector in general, uh, but also uh, I think they really do have their finger on the pulse uh, as to what the ecosystem needs and what it doesn't need. Uh, so I think with Flat Six Labs, when we were kind of doing the uh, mapping of uh, the country and trying to figure out what pockets are, are still not served and where there is some gap in the market, really two areas jumped at us. It was later stage funding. So things beyond, at Series B and beyond, and then obviously at the much, much earlier stages when we talk about ideation and, and pre-MVP and pre-revenue type uh, operations, uh, what most people would call pre-seed. Of course, uh, with Flat6 Labs, the, the latter makes more sense given our operating history. And that's really when we approached them to try and set up a dedicated vehicle for the Saudi market. And uh, of course, we, we saw the eye to eye immediately since they also identified that as an area that's uh, underserved uh, by the current uh, operating uh, consortium of, of funds or, or group of funds that are available in the market. And that's really how, how that developed. So, and that's just begun in April, just launched. How is it coming? So it's coming along nicely. Uh, we're still in the final phases of our fund closing process. As you can imagine, um, legal uh, work takes a little bit of time. Um, uh, I enjoy, uh, of course, uh, draft uh, uh, legal documentation ping pong just as much as any other individual, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's part of the job and it's always fun. But yeah, we're, we're basically at this part of the, the process at this point. You, uh, Flat6 also came out in April with uh, survey results. I guess you did a survey on key insights about the startup eco eco ecosystem in KSA. Um, with some interesting results, can you can you discuss that a little bit? Because this is real insight. Absolutely, and it was it was really just um, the final verification. Because you know things have been moving quite fast, as we mentioned at the beginning of, of uh, the, the talk, with um, almost six hundred million in, in uh, investments for this first half alone. So of course, with with the setup for these vehicles, typically taking a little bit of time, we really wanted to make sure that the market hasn't really moved away from us, so to speak. And of course, the survey, the headline there was that, uh, the headline result was that it, it didn't, despite all uh, of the progress that's happening in the market, there's still an area that's quite underserved, uh, especially when we think about it in more um, uh, basically uh, uh, macro level uh, data perspective. So we have a very young population and it's still uh, pretty much um, part of our demographic makeup for uh, the current time period. A lot of these folks are going to come to market either looking for jobs or looking for a way to make a living. And uh, more often than not, 
uh, starting their own venture is becoming more um, interesting compared to uh, getting a, a salary job with a government entity or institution. And likewise, it's definitely more interesting than uh, going for uh, also a private sector job or, or a position. Um, of course, the funding gap was quite clear. Uh, so most uh, individuals still rely heavily on uh, self-funding and basically money that comes from family and friends as opposed to anything by way of outside investors, uh, whether it be angels or um, more institutionalized operations like ourselves. Um, and of course, uh, the big headline also was the amount of funding available. So I think one of the big uh, disparities between us and some of our neighboring uh, markets, uh, especially when, when we compare, compare ourselves to our home market in, in Egypt, is that the cost of doing business is quite more elevated here in Saudi compared to some of the other neighboring markets. But then again, uh, it's, it's very different um, uh, economic factors at play. So GDP per capita is much larger, uh, the average salary is much higher, and, and likewise, discretionary spending also is much higher. So these are different factors that kind of also show that there is a big opportunity set at play despite uh, the higher cost of uh, operating a business. Well, one of the interesting items in that report that FlatSex did was that um, apparently, according to the survey, one third of startups were founded within the past year. Year, yeah. Which is which is stunning, and and I want to I want to circle back to something you said about you know youth looking at at different opportunities because for the for the longest time you know basically the you know the goal of a of a Saudi citizen either a government job or the gold standard maybe get Saudi Aramco, but that's changed. Um, there are many quite more, a bit yeah. yeah many many more opportunities and and uh, many more options and and certainly young Saudis are broadening their their target, but. It sounds like, you know, as you say, you know, a whole a significant percentage of them are saying, I'm going to go into business for myself. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And um, I think it really comes down to, um, I, don't, I don't think it's a, a huge mismatch, but there is a little bit of a mismatch between the skill sets that a lot of individuals or, or young folks get after the university and, and between the jobs that are available and more conventional uh, with, with more conventional employers, right? Uh, so we do have quite a bit of folks graduating from STEM backgrounds, but then again, that really hasn't been a big part of uh, the private sector, at least in the past. Um, likewise, we do have a lot of people graduating with business degrees. Uh, of course, their finance has been, a, or at least I would say corporate finance and banking specifically, has been a big off taker there, but there's only so many jobs that you can create within that subsegment uh, compared to the inflow of graduates coming into the market. Uh, so I think it's, it's quite natural for people to look at the headlines and see some of these rounds, like for instance, with uh, Foodix, uh, um, uh, large round that just happened a few months ago and was part of the, the, uh, the numbers coming in for this first half and thinking, you know what, I, I think I can do something similar and I would like to take a crack at it and see how things uh, hmm. play out, especially with, with funding being available. And of course, some of the other reforms coming into 
the statutory environment and the legal environment into the market. I think a lot of people are less hesitant to kind of take the risk and essentially not go for their conventional uh, job that once was uh, the blueprint really for any Saudi graduate. Let's take that Foodix reference and circle back to the Magnum report. <clears throat> and, and in this H1 2022, uh, you know, the top funding, top funded sector, the sector that, that, that received the most investment was food and beverage, but that was really outsized because that $100 million plus Foodix uh, IPO right. investment yeah. rather. In terms of, of deals, um, the list was FinTech, transport and logistics, e-commerce, e-commerce, yeah, yeah, enterprise software, and then food and beverage. Um, is that is that accurately reflect your your reality? Is that you know is that what people are excited? It does. About? It does. And and for the longest time, it's been uh, fintech, which has been globally a very hot sector, I would say, and then e-commerce, and both uh, basically segments were competing for the top two spots. But I think one thing that's quite interesting about Saudi Arabia is how widely spread the food and beverage culture is. And just eat, eating out culture or even delivery is a big part of uh, basically our entertainment venues for the longest time, because that's all we had until we started seeing some of these reforms with more entertainment venues coming online. Mm -hmm. So that industry, I would say, has been more mature and more robust compared to other segments within the private economy, so to speak. So I think it's no surprise that um, basically a SaaS operator like Foodex was able to capitalize on that trend and essentially come uh, to market with a product that really serves that large segment that has been a good chunk of our private sector for, for quite some time by way of uh, not, not many other uh, entertainment sources being available. Uh, I, I think I think it's there to stay. Frankly speaking, I think it's it's, it's got some legs, and it's going to uh, basically be a good part of uh, the story going forward. Um, but yeah, it is quite interesting to see. I think for for an outside observer, it is. It has been interesting to watch. It seems like every other startup is is you know deals with food delivery based or or some other thing. <laughs> there's yeah. clearly a market for it. So let's move out a little bit on that magnet because um, magnet report. Uh, you know, in terms of numbers and deals and amounts of deals, UAE took the first half, you know, they're, they're in the lead. Uh, Saudi Arabia was second. It was notable, I guess, in terms of numbers of deal that Saudi Arabia sort of uh, leapfrogged Egypt in terms of numbers of deals. They're very close, 79 versus 78. Uh, and as you noted, Egypt has really been the, you know, the the main source, so, so you know, the, the origins of so much of this investment and, and I think have, have been a guidepost for a lot of people without the region, throughout the region. Is this something that will sustain, you think? You think Saudi Arabia is headed this way? It will probably be a little more active than, and continue to climb the charts, as it were? I, I certainly hope so. And I think one thing that doesn't really get reflected in the numbers is how much um, collaboration there is between both um, countries in terms of uh, Saudi companies looking to Egypt as a uh, basically their second market to grow operations outside of Saudi because again it's a very sizable population and it's uh, not a small economy by, by uh, any measure and then vice versa likewise you have um, 
Egyptian companies essentially looking at Saudi Arabia as their first go-to uh, location to expand beyond their borders. But also when it comes to operating um, uh, considerations between the two countries, a lot of the Saudi companies end up hiring a lot of their uh, technical workforce outside of Egypt as well. Uh, because again, there's a shared language, uh, there's no shortage of technical capabilities, especially when it comes to computer science and, and uh, basically programming. So a lot of Saudi companies end up hiring uh, basically operations staff and, and development uh, uh, engineers in, in Cairo. Uh, of course, uh, again, with, with uh, the, the round trip from Cairo to Saudi for Egyptian companies, um, um, of course, sales and, and business development is also a big function here for, for these companies that are looking to uh, expand uh, beyond Egypt and come into another neighboring market. There was one there was, uh, that that Magnum report, by the way, I recommend to to folks and maybe Lucian, when we for the for our, the video uh, of this, you know, maybe we can put up some slides. But uh, it, it was really useful. As I said, we feel very fortunate in terms of the timing as we're talking with Yad. Um, one one slide I thought was interesting was, uh, you know, it, it did looked at VC funding by stage. And uh, the range is 2018 to 2022, and the, the sta four stages it, it, it notes is early stage, Series A, Series B, and then late stage. And I thought it was interesting in the slide. So 2018, uh, essentially 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, uh, early stage is all in 80% of deals. You know, the one thing, what has grown in 2022 was uh, Series B which has grown a little bit, but just sort of peaking out for the first time in 2022 is late stage, 2% late stage. Is that gonna be, is that gonna grow? I certainly hope so, because again, that was kind of a, I don't wanna call it death valley, but really that's what it was. You had companies that really did great stuff in terms of ramping up their operations, but then essentially hit a proverbial wall once they get beyond a certain stage because they couldn't get access to funding that helps them go beyond uh, those earlier stages or relatively early stages. Um, so I think one entity that's also being uh, more active in, in that um, uh, segment is my ex-employer, Sanabo Investments. So uh, of course their name came up with, with the Foodix deal, but also um, they're, they're quite, active and trying to be kind of the bridge for these Saudi tech companies that get to a certain stage of growth and are kind of beyond the, the market fit stage and essentially uh, being able to cement themselves as a sizable and uh, growing business and uh, essentially need that funding to continue growing. So they've, uh, I think, positioned themselves and uh, a spot where they are that source of capital and also uh, by way of them being an LP historically and a lot of uh, venture capital funds around the world, essentially being a pipeline generator for these um, uh, essentially companies uh, so that they can connect with uh, international uh, VC shops and, and investors abroad. Let's... Um... So this was a tremendous first half. Um, 
I think in terms of the global economy and that sort of things, probably we're seeing more headwinds the second half. Um, do you see the momentum of this venture capital ecosystem uh, continuing? I mean, is it is it uh, wholly contingent on a, on the global economy and and uh, you know reven oil revenues and that sort of thing, or does it have an impetus of its own to continue its expansion and not necessarily at this pace, but on this dread trajectory? So I think within the Saudi context, strictly, of course, we do have um, considerable tailwind by way of oil prices being where they are today. Uh, and of course, if that continues, then we'll be quite set for that trend to keep going. Uh, and I think even in uh, a scenario where uh, oil prices don't keep up their current levels, it's, it's uh, an existential uh, task at this point, I would say, because we really at a, a junction where, um, you know, the old blueprint of relying on government spending and a centralized economy isn't really going to work over the long term. Of course, it's, it's a great coincidence that oil prices happen to be where they are today, which would hopefully be more of a catalyst and more of a fuel for uh, these trends to keep going the way they are going, at least within the Saudi context. But I think it'll be quite naive to assume that what's happening within the greater global economy won't have a little bit of a spillover into uh, the sector and into our own economy. Of course, I think one thing that a lot of practitioners or a lot of shops have been hoping for is a correction in some of the deal terms that we're seeing. Uh, I think it's been no secret that over the past uh, 12 to 24 months, prior to this market correction that we've seen, uh, deal terms and valuations have really become quite elevated to a point where a lot of people might describe them as unsustainable over the long term. And uh, I think a lot of people, at least on the investment side, of course, not so much on the entrepreneurial side of things, are hoping for that to spill over into the local market so that you know, the market doesn't get ahead of itself in terms of valuations and terms. Um, are we seeing that uh, happen today? Not necessarily, but I think generally speaking, it wouldn't be an, uh, an accurate statement to say that uh, both entrepreneurs and investors are becoming more conscious of the terms that deals are being underwritten. Um the capital market situation and 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 obviously the you know the Tadawo did you know i think was one of the leading forces in the in, in the globe last year um but the no mill market as well has been quite active and it seems to have been uh, a target and opportunity for a lot of companies uh and is that how you're seeing it again i don't anticipate it will you know it will repeat last year's performance either the no or the Tadawo, but but it and, and, and in fact, I understand IPO uh, activity is reduced, a little suppressed at the moment after a, a very heated run. But it's an it's a it's an exit that didn't really seem to exist, you know, five, 10 years ago. A hundred percent. And I think most investors really came into the asset class with uh, the mindset that um, mergers and acquisitions, especially by way of, uh, you know, more international operators wanting to come to a market. Uh, being the only viable way to exit. But again, what happened with Namu, especially with uh, the, the jazz 
IPO. Again, Jazz, for, for those that might not be aware of it, is um, I would say the leading uh, on-demand delivery platform for, uh, of course, food and beverage and other uh, Q-commerce type uh, services. That was that was a quite a successful um, exit vis-a-vis -vis, uh, financial markets. Uh, there's a healthy pipeline of similar companies that are thinking of using uh, that market in particular, or that uh, uh, marketplace in particular, or um, a public market as, as a venue for their financial exit. Um, it, it remains to be seen if it'll be as successful going forward as you rightfully said, but within the grand scheme of things, uh, I think one thing that has always irked me about our public markets here in Saudi is that they're quite limited in the number of companies that were listed. So for the longest time, we, we had somewhere around 180 to 200, uh, less than 200 companies essentially trading in that exchange. And that's, that's quite a small size given the size of the, the, the economy. Uh, I think both uh, the government and, and the exchange itself have been quite um, uh, helpful in, in convincing uh, you know, family offices and, and basically larger enterprises to think about going public and, and what that would unlock for them in terms of access to not only public equity, but also other forms of capital and, and reducing the cost of financing their businesses. Uh, but also with Namu, I think it really uh, gave an avenue for investors to uh, essentially uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of getting liquidity for their investments. And I think that's one of the main reasons why you see the majority of investors today uh, being uh, Saudi investors, because uh, of course, uh, a Saudi entity typically did have an easier time navigating the requirements of, of going public on, on one of these exchanges. Um, uh, so that, that's been quite interesting. And it's certainly something that I see continuing going forward, although, as you correctly mentioned, with the uncertainty in terms of uh, where the, the exchange is going to go and where the index is going to go over the short period of time is uh, triggering a wait and see approach with a lot of um, uh, basically uh, companies that were set on going public this year. So I have to ask you, because I think it's a theme, Lucian can attest to this, that I, every bright person I meet, I sort of ask them about this. It's not your bailiwick per se, because it's a sovereign wealth fund. But what is PIF? I find it fascinating. The, the mandate, the thing, how it's evolved. You know, this was, a, this was sort of a, a, a sleepy little sovereign wealth fund in 2015. And now it's, uh, it's not only a, a global you know, player, but uh, obviously in the domestic market, it's everywhere. Um, I just find it a, I don't know if it's a unicorn, but I find it fascinating. Well, yeah. So historically, it, it has always been um, more, or at least it played more of a developmental role in the local economy. It was also the holding entity for a lot of um, public entities that got privatized. So uh, think of utilities, think of basically a lot of utilities and a lot of government functions before they became private enterprises and, and uh, got switched over into companies. And I think with, with uh, the recent bout of reforms that we're seeing, it was definitely instrumental to um, uh, essentially mobilize a lot of the, the 
uh, policies that are coming into um, a fruitation. Uh, so of course that triggered a restructuring of uh, the entire organization as a whole to become a bit more uh, commercially minded and operate really as a uh, typical sovereign wealth fund that would invest uh, reserves and basically excess capital for the future. Uh, and of course, there um, uh, not only does it invest in uh, international markets, but also it's been quite active in setting up uh, companies in the local economy to fill in a lot of the gaps that the private sector hasn't uh, really stepped up to, to uh, essentially um, take on. Uh, so it, it's a mixture of I would say still a developmental organization uh, at, at, its, at its core, and also a financial investor that uh, wants to maximize uh, the, the wealth that is available for uh, the country for future generations to come. It is interesting because you know it has the capability and the assets to essentially be you know choose a sector and decide to be a loss leader in order to develop that sector. You know something you know exactly. a, a private company cannot do and, and would not do should not do. Um, but I just you know it's it's really interesting. Yeah, this has been fascinating for me. Um, Lucian, did you did did I miss? I'm sure I missed a bunch. Well, but. just I, I, if I could ask two, and I'm going to kind of go back to the first of flat six because um, I'm super curious in. So first, you guys have collaborated with MISC um, for startup boot camps. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And um, I guess specifically, I'm interested in the sort of energy of these young entrepreneurs in these boot camps, which are relatively new in Saudi Arabia. Could you tell us a little bit about that collaboration and and um, and how that went and 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 sort of that energy in there? Absolutely. So as as an organization, Plastic Sides, of course, the core function for us is operating these closed-end vehicles that invest in uh, basically the countries that we're present in. But uh, a big part of that, and as, as we mentioned, setting up these vehicles can be quite long-term in nature. So a lot of uh, our locations that you see today where we have our own investment arms really came to light around 2017, 2018, despite us as an organization uh, being in existence roughly seven years before that, if, if not longer. Uh, but during that meantime, we were quite active in operating these programs uh, because A, it's, it's not only a source of revenue for us, but also it's, it's, a, it's a very efficient way for us to create a pipeline and, and also get more engaged with the local ecosystem before we actually come in and, and start uh, putting uh, capital to work. So um, much like uh, other programs that we've done with um, IKEA and Patouf back between 2013, 2017, the MISC program was, was essentially a continuation of that where uh, essentially it allowed us to kind of put our finger on the pulse of uh, the Saudi ecosystem and get more familiar with what's happening on the ground. In, in Saudi Arabia, uh, Flatsix Labs really started back in 2013 operating uh, essentially an accelerator program in collaboration with Oof, which is a non-for-profit organization um, and really the country's first private startup accelerator at the time. And of course, uh, the, the funding there came from IKEA and uh, Arabian Cement. Um, and that lasted for a good four years before 
Potov uh, essentially couldn't continue uh, supporting the program. Of course, that was done, um, again, in our capacity as an operator and a consultant, uh, more so than an investor. And again, that was also a very different time in terms of foreign capital being able to access Saudi Arabia. So it wasn't even possible for um, an entity like Five Six Labs uh, to put money to work uh, around that time period. And of course, uh, then we, we did the collaboration with um, MISC uh, for, uh, during 2019, where between October and November, uh, sorry, October and December of 2019, we essentially trained uh, 100 plus uh, startup founders across uh, Riyadh, Jeddah, Medina, uh, Al Qasim and uh, on the eastern region, Al Khubar slash uh, Bahran. Um, and I think that was really the inflection point where um, uh, the folks back in Cairo really uh, realized that, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a really great opportunity here to put money to work. And that's really when the plans for uh, this current fund really saw uh, the light of day. And we started working with them. So on that and on sort of the funding, when, when the fund is closed, and this is sort of a broad stroke, um, your website says, um, I mean, you're looking for companies in the logistics, utilities, e-commerce, health sector located in Saudi. And then there are a bunch of points that sort of could be at any point, incorporated or not, idea, prototype users, paying users, angel pre-seed seed, like anywhere in that spectrum. So I'm wondering if there's a... a entrepreneur listening to this or watching this with a great idea, they want to do your, they want to join your accelerator and want to apply for your fund, um, which you can do on flat six labs, by the way.com. Um, if they're doing that, how could they pitch themselves to you? What are you looking for? Are you looking for the entrepreneur or are you looking for company by company? And tell us a little bit about what you guys are looking for. We're definitely looking for the entrepreneur on the entrepreneurial team, so to speak. So mm -hmm. we, we try to stay away from single founders. Uh, we typically like to see at least a couple of founders working on an idea together. And really the whole idea there is that things pivot and plans change, even though something might look appealing to the founding team in terms of where they want to take this idea. Oftentimes through their, our program and beyond, entrepreneurs kind of realized that, okay, uh, there was a blind spot here that I was kind of missing. And this idea would actually work great in this sector as opposed to this sector when they started putting the idea together. And that's why we, we list a long um, uh, list of, of sectors that we would look at. We really are sector agnostic. We don't uh, have preferences. And we, we actually hold the belief that at the early stages, um, you know, sector verticals are not deep enough really for most countries within our region to, to kind of operate uh, with, with a sector focus, at least as far as uh, accelerator programs and investment programs uh, go. Uh, so that being said, we really do invest in the team as opposed to the idea itself. Um, and, and that has yielded great results in some of our other locations. And I have no doubt that it will continue to yield results in, in Saudi Arabia and uh, other areas that we operate in. Yad Al Bayouk, General Manager of Flat Six Labs, Saudi Arabia, an early stage and seed venture capital firm in the kingdom. Yad, thank you so much. This is a great discussion. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope to see you again soon. Likewise, and I really appreciate you having me, guys. And, and hopefully, uh, we'll be able to do this again uh, soon.
That was our conversation with Iyad Albayuk from Flat Six Labs. A reminder, you can listen to any of these conversations, all of these segments on our YouTube channel, the 966 Podcast. They're also on our website. Um, Richard, that was so good. Well done. Iyad, Iyad Albayuk, Flat Six Labs. Yes. 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 That's my really comment. Cool. Yes. Really, really <laughs> burgeoning space in Saudi Arabia yeah. is VC what? and startups and stuff. So it was really cool to hear. Get, many get levels, skinny. many levels. And he was conversant and knowledgeable on all of them. It, mm-hmm. it, that was, that was a, a little tutorial, big tutorial for me. That was great. Indeed. Shall we get to Yella? Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> Yella. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number it's one. because it's because guys, it's because we can hear our own voices so it's well true. that it's, it's true. <laughs> so, it is still, it's still funny, well, episode it, 54. It started out as a stupid take on NPR when I do that. And then and then you're, I don't know what your your rap yella is, but every time you do it, it just cracks me up. <laughs> I mean, so anyway, number one, will Lucid Motors, Saudi Arabian Connection, help win them a big Aston Martin partnership? Uh, inside EVs, Ben O'Hare reports that Aston Martin, a century-old British luxury car maker, may be looking to go electric to combat uh, flagging sales. The company is in somewhat dire straits, holding around $1 billion in debt and finishing off 2021 with a deficit of nearly $91 million. Despite their recent struggles, Aston Martin revealed last year that they hope to have their first EV available sometime in 2025. To help facilitate this, they are said to be weighing other manufacturer platforms to help expedite their journey to a finished product. Lucid Motors, uh, Mercedes-Benz, and Rimrack are believed to be favorites. It's hard to see those that list of favorites, Lucid, Mercedes, and Rimrack, and not see Lucid as the favorite. I mean, the PIF owns approximately 62% of Lucid Motors. They're all electric, so they're they're not dealing with any legacy problems or, or conversion uh, challenges, like Merce- at least like Mercedes is. Also, obviously, the very deep pockets of the PIF. Um, and this sort of makes a lot of sense for the PIF too, Richard. If there's a clear and solid vision to get back in the green for Aston Martin, PIF has the cash to help them do that, even if it's expensive. I mean, Aston Martins are timeless. Um, they're like a favorite of James Bond. James Bond, um, 007. Which is so cool. I mean, they're probably my favorite luxury car outside of the Lucid Air, which, you know, obviously we are awaiting delivery of, but um, it's just really cool. I mean, this is a cool, this is a cool space and, and this could be an interesting partnership. And on top of that, I mean, uh, Lucid has the chops. I mean, they're they're ahead of class in terms of EV cars when it comes to power, speed, and battery life. They have proprietary drivetrain technology. I mean, they're they're known to be you know really, uh, you know, right at the front in terms of technological, uh, you know, electric vehicles. And and so it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and. Uh, this is what this is old adage, you know, the, you know, if you have money, you make money. This is, you know, the, it's been interesting, the offshoots from that investment in Lucid that that PIF made, you know, it's led to a manufacturing plant that's, that's begun and, and is, you know, scheduled for King Abdullah Economic City that Lucid will be doing, you know, Aston Martin, they invented it, you know, invested in Aston Martin, put, I think, $90 million in and Aston Martin is going to open up a shop at Neom, I think, in, in a bit where they have some people there. Uh, so yeah, there's all these the synergies that are occurring uh, and could be exciting. And there's a big race in this space all of a sudden. I mean, Apple today announced that they've hired a Lamborghini executive to help them you know, get into the space, help them to design a car, which is interesting. Um, you know, it's just, 
just seeing Lucid's car, and I haven't done a test drive of, of the side-by-side of a Tesla versus Lucid, but Lucid just looks so much nicer to me. Um, and from everything that we've seen, uh, a few Lucids have now hit the road, a few videos of it on uh, Twitter showing Lucids in Saudi Arabia. They just look so tight. They look so good. I love the lines on that car. I think it's yeah. I think it's gorgeous is the word awesome. for me. I got a buddy that has one on order and I, I really detest him. You mean a future best friend that has future, one on order? Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm looking at it incorrectly, but he, he told me I ordered one and it was coming and he just, you know, he was just, I just went off because I was so excited about it. Oh, we talk about it all the time. And he said, yeah, well, I'm getting one. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you get to drive it. I hope it um, meets expectations. It looks so cool. Um, Dream car for sure. Richard Yellen, number two, Saudi Arabia concludes its participation at the Farnborough International Air Show. The kingdom concluded its participation at the Farnborough International Air Show, uh, which was a five-day show held uh, in the UK this last week. Witness wide-scale participation from across the globe. Under the national, quote, Invest Saudi banner, the Saudi pavilion was organized and led by the General Authority for Military Industries, GAMI. It comprised GAMI, the Saudi Ministry of Investment, the World Defense Show, and the Saudi Arabia Military Industries, SAMI. Ahmed Al-Oli, a name I just butchered, I'm sure, and I'm really (laughs) sorry, GAMI governor said the core message to global stakeholders was it has never been easier to localize business. Also announced was that the Saudi defense sector localization grew from 2% in 2018 to 11.7% in 2021. Wow. Yeah, this was, I just had to be fun. This was the first in-person Farnborough show in three years. And I think for Saudis, it's kind of cool because they're coming off that in March, they had their world defense show, their first big show. Yeah. So they're sort of, you know, they're part of the club now in terms of uh, defense shows. The Farnborough is the granddaddy of them. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and so they had a lot of good announcements. I think Gammy also said, you know, 291 establishment permits to 174 establishments. I guess uh, uh, 41% were defense establishments. So so and I think you you're, you're wow, you know, on that localization rate from 2% in 2018 to 11.7% uh, in 2021 is appropriate. I mean, they're making some headways. And I think in Farnborough, when they uh, I was talking a lot about the incentives that they're, they're providing for, um, you know, manufacturers and people in the space to come to Saudi and do, you know, work and set up local manufacturing. I mean, it, a whole raft of incentives, you know, VAT exemption, uh, industrial lands at discounted rates, advanced payments on defense contracts, um, regulatory and policy reform. So anyway, they're going at it hard. And it's nice to point to a little bit of progress, even since 2018. Well said. I mean, the you know the the wow that you and I both now share. I mean, that the reason why that's so key is just the amount of capital that goes out of the country to you know source defense sector needs. So if that is localized, that is mo- a lot of money saved. That's cool. I didn't realize that that was the progress. That that is huge. That is definitely more than a naysayer would say they could achieve in that time. So. Excellent. Yellen number three, Saudi Arabia plans air cargo roadshows to lure Amazon DHL. Saudi Arabia plans to, this is another thing that was discussed, I think, at Farnborough. Saudi Arabia plans to stage a number of roadshows in the next 12 to 18 months as it seeks to persuade the likes of Amazon, Alibaba, 
and Deutsche Post AG's DHL to help scale up air cargo and distribution operations, the Mideast country will invite private companies to establish partnerships and set up freight forwarding and warehousing activities, said Mohammed Fahad Al-Qaraisi, Vice President for Strategy at the Saudi General Authority of Civil Aviation, GACA. GACA. Gammy, Sammy, GACA. <laughs> uh, it's, so this is cool. There was also an update um, on the... Uh, potential setting up of a new passenger airline in this article that would be based out of Riyadh, which um, they said was progressing very well. Um, Launch very soon was the quote. Launch very soon, yeah. Um, The the numbers here are staggering. A $100 billion plan to expand aviation. I mean, so logistics is is huge right now. And so, um, you know, this is... This, I feel like we expected this, but this is still very cool to see. This is a good one. Another crazy also, in addition, like you said, that, that the new airline is, uh, is, is going to fly very soon, quote unquote. He said that uh, Saudi will cut airport fees by up to 35% at Riyadh, Jeddah, and Dammam later this year. Oh, nice. Wow. As airports are given flexibility to cut charges below the announced caps in order to maximize growth. So they're going at it. They're going at it and they can afford to do it. They can afford to give you these discounts if you're willing to set up operations in Saudi Arabia. And yeah. it's just like what we discussed earlier is, is their physical location. I mean, it should be attractive on its own. Um, and so if they can outcompete Dubai and Qatar and some of these other um, areas by giving these discounts and by, by setting up a strategy here, I mean, this is, this is, this is all good. Nice. Okay. So Yella number four. YouTube removes offensive ads upon request by Saudi Arabia regulators. YouTube removed certain offensive advertisements, which were described as inconsistent with Islamic and social uh, Saudi societal standards upon the request of media regulators in Saudi Arabia. Arabic news media Bloomberg Ashark reported on Monday, citing a YouTube spokesperson. On Sunday, Saudi Arabia's General Commission for Audiovisual Media and the Communications and Information Technology Commission released a statement demanding the Google-owned video sharing platform remove the offensive advertisements. A spokesman from YouTube told the broadcaster that accounts of the advertisers who broadcasted the offensive content had been shut down. You know, to quote my esteemed colleague, Lucian Ziegler, this is not Las Vegas. That quote does endure, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. No, it's an important reminder. It's an important reminder. This is not Las Vegas. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's not Las Vegas. And it's interesting because tech companies are, you know, willing to play ball. They're seeing this massive market. They're seeing Saudis, especially a massive younger population, embrace their platforms. They don't want to run afoul of regulators. So, you know. And it's, um, you know, it's a fact of life. I mean, there are red lines in Saudi Arabia and, and, you know, it's criticized for human rights violations, which, which, you know, has, has validity in certain cases and certainly by, you know, compared to, to uh, our, our standards in a liberal democracy, uh, you know, but they have thresholds that they think are appropriate and they didn't want you to go, go past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I am not advocating anything, but I certainly would like you know, our political discourse and things like on Twitter and TikTok and TikTok not so bad, but, you know, uh, you know, Facebook, you know, uh, you know, our, our dialogue, public dialogue in the U.S. is pretty rancid. You know, Twitter is a Twitter is a cesspool of, of negativity and anger and, and misleading things. You know, would I like it monitored? No, it's not probably not appropriate. And that's not the way out of it. But, uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia, 
they're not anywhere near this and they don't want to get anywhere near this. What's interesting about this story, and I feel like um, there isn't a full picture here, but uh, you know, during the read, I said uh, YouTube, uh, a spokesperson from YouTube told the broadcaster that accounts of the advertisers who broadcasted the offensive content had been shut down. They didn't say that they removed the offensive content from YouTube videos or that they took them off in Saudi Arabia. They actually shut the uh, broadcasters of those accounts down, which is um, you know interesting because maybe there was something nefarious going on here, or maybe. Google determined that these guys were, you know, sort of subverting their rules just to do this. Um, interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, cool. yellow number five, 40 colleges to convert into applied colleges, 40 Saudi colleges. The Saudi Council of Universities Affairs has decided to convert 40 theoretical colleges located in various governance into applied colleges specialized in health, technology, and engineering. By this, the number of applied colleges, again, that specialize in health, technology, and engineering in the kingdom would rise to 75. The council approved the classification of the model Saudi universities into five categories. These are comprehensive, pedagogical, research, specialized, and applied. These criteria aim to enhance differentiation between universities, raise the level of specialization and focus, enhance the efficiency of their operation, raise the level of added value to society and the nation with a roadmap to focus strategies for these universities and to improve the quality of education outputs. I love that quality of education outputs in line with the requirements of the national, regional and global labor market. I love this Richard and and, um, soon enough we'll have somebody from the education space in Saudi Arabia join us on the 966 uh, to talk about everything going on because there's just so much change and modernization and investment going into education in Saudi Arabia that what used to be one of the top issues um, for Americans, which was sort of a overlooked, um, you know, uh, not rigorously um, governed Saudi education system, which sometimes fed extremists, you know, is now like just driving to the hoop on becoming globally recognized in the higher ed space. I mean, having their children learn English earlier. I mean, getting rid of any extremist texts or any extremist teachings or teachers from the education system. I mean, these are huge changes that take time and investment. And now we're sort of like later on in that stage where we're starting to see, um, you know, higher goals for these uh, higher ed colleges and universities. That is really cool. We've talked about it on this show numerous times, how you have these grand plans, you have these amazing announcements, you have these ambitious targets and metrics, and the, you know, the fundamental, uh, you know, thing that has to come to make it possible is the educational aspect of it, as in training uh, appropriate and, and employable Saudis. I think John Sfakinak is... Uh, Dr. John Sakinakis, who we had a great session in terms mm-hmm. of the economy, referred to it as capacity, which is a, which is a, a good term. And, you know, uh, you know, it can race along with the announcements and the construction and that sort of thing, but you still have to build the capacity, which takes longer and it might even be a generation. Um, but this is an aggressive mood and it's a, and it's a very disruptive imagine. So that's 40 universities that, you know, and college professors and so on and so forth, they're going to have to rewire and, and maybe, you know, do something else or, 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 you know, it's, it's really disruptive. It's a, it's a, it's a strong move. As you say to the hoop, interesting part of this universities will also be required to reduce the acceptance rate for disciplines, quote, 
not compatible with the labor market, unquote, by at least 50%, the council said. The mandated increases and reductions will apply for five years, beginning with the coming academic year. We will be reassessed after three years. I mean, they're, they're basically saying, you know, give me engineers and scientists and, you know, professionals like that sort of thing. And, and, and we're going to completely, you know, we're going to make, you know, we're going to transfer 40 to get to 75, uh, uh, you know, institutions that I, I don't know if it's vocational, but, you know, is, is applied. Um, and they're, they're letting the market drive the educational system, which uh, makes sense. They're insisting the market drive the educational system, uh, you know, in an effort to try and build this capacity that they so desperately need. Yeah, fewer art history students and uh, more, uh, you know, accountants, qualified mechanics. accountants, mechanics. Yeah. yeah. Um, yellow number six. Saudi Arabia is the most positive on its country's economic outlook, with 93% rating it as good, according to the Ipsos Global Consumer Confidence Survey. The survey used a representative sample of 20,000 adults aged 16 to 74 in 27 participating countries. According to the survey, across 27 countries, 32% on average say that the current economic situation in their country is good, while a majority of 68% say that it is bad. Uh, so we've talked about this. Saudi Arabia is in the zone. I mean, with with oil revenues up, with um, you know managing COVID well, with the economy, non-oil, and all aspects of it, sort of firing on all cylinders and growing, and 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 a lot of excitement. I mean, there there are there are soft spots and there are concerns and that sort of thing, uh, but the numbers are pretty impressive. I mean, ninety three percent. The next with India was seventy seven percent. Sweden, you know. You know, the Scandinavian countries always rock in this quality of life and, you know, and outlook and they're at 57%. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is busting Sweden by, by, you know, close to, close to 40 percentage points. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, so it's a good time for Saudi Arabia. Everybody should feel good about the economy. Yeah. I mean, it really shows the buy-in and that's very helpful when you're doing these economic transformations, when you're completely changing your society and your economy, it really helps to have people believing what you're going to do and believing in the end game. And even if 93% is very high and maybe some people didn't want to say they weren't as positive because right. they felt, you know, whatever. I mean, so what? Take 20% off of that, 73%. I mean, that's great. That, Like you said, that's second. So, I mean, this is really good. This is indicative of people saying, all right, we're here for the ride. Let's see where we end up. We're buying in on this. And obviously, Oil prices uh, don't hurt making a billion a day in exports. Um, I would be pretty confident about that myself as well. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, at the granular level, you know, the Saudis are worried about inflation. They're worried about, uh, you know, what their purchasing power is and we, you know, that, and, and, you know, and housing and, and, you know, can I do this? And, and so it's a real life thing, but it's, uh, certainly in the context of the world, Saudi Arabia and, and certain oil producing states that have managed their affairs well are doing better than anybody in the globe right now. Absolutely. And, you know, it was like, we, Richard, we talked with John Sfakianakis a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how one of the things that was just very obvious to him in this transformation was the restaurants. I mean, it's just completely different than what it was before. I mean, you could go and have rest, go to restaurants and there were 
you know, sort of separated or segregated by gender. And now they're not as much that way, but they're also just some of the world's best restaurants in Riyadh. I mean, if you're looking around, you're saying, well, this is awesome. This is totally different. I mean, this, this is proof to me right now that what we're doing is working. Um, you know, even if we don't have our goals hit yet, I'm dining at a Nobu in Riyadh. I mean, how cool is that? So I don't know, it just seems it's just, this doesn't seem surprising that high number. I think a lot of Saudis are saying, Hey, we're, we're on the right track. So I agree. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer because that is amazing and it's real progress. And um, funny, one of the things on uh, that we've read in, in uh, about real estate and night Frank is, is people talking about, uh, you know, the restaurant uh, ecosystem is going to be booming and that the people are, you know, it's really going to be a, a, at, a, at a global level. People are going to be attracted to Saudi restaurants at the, at the, at the local level. Uh, there's a question of who can afford to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're middle class and, you know, that's still really pricey. And, and and so these are all things that are going to work out. I think overall that the, the macro look from Saudi Arabia is awesome. At the micro level, there's always challenges and and, you know, they'll deal with it. And but they're going to have to deal with things. But, you know, if you're in Saudi, you've got to feel if you're a Saudi, you got to feel very good about your economy and how it's been managed and, and the way things are headed. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Awesome. It's always fun.